Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 43 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. Pea Supers, thanks for tuning in. This week, the tables are turned, and it's me in the interview hot seat for the Maintain the Design podcast. There's issues around having a voice. Quite often I work with leaders who are in a meeting and there's an interesting discussion going on and they will want to make a contribution and they go inside their head and think, right, I'm going to craft this contribution. I'm going to design beautifully what I'm going to say. And then they come back to the room and the, the conversation has moved on and they've missed their opportunity. Or someone else has just said what they were going to say and been <laughs> applauded for it. So it's really frustrating for them. Yeah. <laughs> People Soup is an award-winning podcast where we share evidence-based behavioral science in a way that's practical, accessible, and fun to nourish your mind to flourish at work. Yeah, so this episode is a bit different, Pea Supers. You'll hear me being interviewed by Thato Mathebula and G-Men from the Maintain the Design podcast based in Johannesburg. And I thought it would be fun to share this, as their questions they asked gave me a great workout on a Sunday morning in January. I was really chuffed to be asked by the guys. Their podcast is about creative culture and lifestyle in various industries and niches, such as business, art, music and fashion. They say, not being limited in our topics of conversation is our vibe. And their guest list is a testament to that. I really like their approach to their range of exploration. Their recent guests have included the rappers Flo Jones Jr. and Jay Hood, a pioneer in South African dance and urban culture, Mernili Simba, and pro-league athlete and trainer Chris Rauwenheimer, where they discuss, amongst other things, the toxic elements of a gym lifestyle. Over to the news desk, and I've just seen a review over on Twitter of the book written by our last guest, Anne Parkinson. Melanie Ye said, I'm currently reading it, and it's absolutely brilliant. Learning and remembering as I read. All fascinating, and a lot has the potential to be life-changing. I'm loving it. Thank you for not giving up and getting it written. It is undoubtedly helping people. And Anne replied on Twitter, Some lovely feedback about my book. Makes it all worthwhile. I didn't give up as I stayed connected to my purpose of writing it. If you haven't caught those episodes with Anne, I'd highly recommend them, folks. In other news, you may have heard talk of People Soup bookmarks. We've had some printed to celebrate the podcast, and they're absolutely free. My dad is in charge of UK Dispatch, and he's created a bespoke workstation to process your requests. You can see a photo of it in the show notes. We love connecting with people, so if you'd like some, all we need is your postal address. If you do enjoy the podcast, I'd love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review it. Whatever platform you're on, it helps us amplify our voice and reach more people with stuff that could be useful. If there's an episode you particularly like, you can also drop some change into my virtual tip jar. It helps us keep the podcast running, and that's over at ko-fi.com slash peoplesoup. For now, get a brew on and have a listen to me being interviewed by Thato and G-Man. What's going on, beautiful people? It's your boy Tito. And this guy has G-Man. 
and uh, welcome to another episode of Maintain the Design Podcast. Today, we have a very interesting conversation with an organ organizational and coaching psychologist and host of the People Soup Podcast, Ross McIntosh. How are you doing? Hey, Thato. Hey, G-Man. I'm really well, thank you. That's great. That's great. How was, how's the start to 2021 been so far? How to describe it? Unusual. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm in the UK and we are currently in another lockdown and it's kind of quite surreal. Because even us here in South Africa, we, the restrictions have gone up a little bit, but we're not on a hard lockdown as yet again. You know, so I can imagine how difficult it is to be on a very strict lockdown once again. I mean, to be honest, personally, it's not enormously difficult, but I do worry about family members and and yeah. people who are in difficult positions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. So, Russ, for someone who doesn't have an understanding of what it is that you do exactly, how would you how would you describe what you do? Very good question. So, I work with organizations. I work with small companies, large companies, and an organizational or occupational psychologist can, can look at various areas of an organization. I tend to specialize in partly in psychometric assessments for recruitment. So that yeah. means that that's kind of like personality profiling. And my main specialism is exploring organizational well-being and leadership. Yeah. Both of those elements. So I will use evidence-based psychology to design interventions to enhance psychological well-being in organizations for individuals. I'll also do the same to look at how we can create the conditions for collaboration and cooperation within teams. Mm -hmm. And I also coach. I coach mainly leaders. Okay. Supporting leaders in these in these complex times, in their complex roles, in organizations that seem to be getting increasingly complex, to give them the flexibility and adaptability to survive and thrive and give direction and inspiration to their people. So it's bringing an evidence base based on psychological and other research to organizations to support them in fulfilling their vision and their mission. Ross, I just wanted to ask, so in terms of your intervention designs and stuff, do you lean on sort of, so I don't know a lot about behavioral psychology, but I do know, I think everyone does know the sort of the Pavlov and the conditioning, the CBT. What do you mainly use to design your interventions and what would they look like? Gee, man, great question. Yeah, so there is a bit of, you mentioned Pavlov, and at the end of the day, we are, we are animals. And in an organizational sense, we tend to get the behavior that we reinforce. Mm. And sometimes if behavior is not so good and we don't address it, then people take that as an indication that that behavior is okay. Mm, true. But let me give you the, the main foundation of all my work is something called contextual behavioral science, which is a way of looking at the human condition and essentially reducing human suffering. There's a particular part of contextual behavioral science called acceptance and commitment therapy. And we call that ACT just to save time. <laughs> and what that does is it's, a, it's kind of an evolution of CBT. I think you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. And what it does, it's allowing me, hopefully, to 
share with people skills that will allow them to be in the present moment more often so they can see what's going on around them and notice opportunities and threats. They can also notice what's going on in their minds because quite often that stuff can be an obstacle. It allows people to work out what's important for them in different life areas. So we call these personal values and it's these things that have personal resonance and meaning for us. And then Interesting, we look at what's going on between the ears, those, all those unhelpful thoughts, emotions, memories, sensations, that stuff such as, oh, I'm not clever enough to do that, or it will never work, or quite a common one, I'm going to be discovered for the fraud that I am. Mm-hmm. And all those types of thoughts, we can really buy into them and they can really influence how we show up in the world and stop us doing mm-hmm. stuff that's important to us. So by combining an approach addressing these types of skills, we can give people skills to enhance their ability to be flexible in life. So this isn't just about them at work. This is their skills for their whole life. And we can enhance their capacity to respond to new situations. So that's kind of it in quite a large nutshell. That was quite a long-winded response, but hopefully that gives you an insight. Yeah, it does. It actually, it's a great um, jumping off point. Also, just so in terms of the the, the act, what would be your in sort of because I imagine you deal with obviously a wide range of of people, and so it's mainly for a workplace, right? What what would be your main problems that sort of emerge from there that you have to deal with, or your main mm. are they recurring, you know, scenarios that you end up dealing with brilliant brilliant question first of all yeah act is used in all sorts of areas of of psychological intervention so it's used a lot in one-to-one work it can be used for addiction psychosis all sorts of all sorts of areas but what i specialize in is yes using it in the workplace Mm. and i think some of the key things i look at some of the key things i support people with that connection with anxiety and fear can be quite a big thing. If I'm working with a leader, they can get quite exhausted by the leadership role and the role modeling that they strive to exhibit for their people. Mm-hmm. And that can bring up lots of sense of anxiety or imposter phenomenon, which is that idea that, oh, crikey, I'm going to be discovered. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not worthy of this role. So it can just help people understand that that is a natural reaction of the human mind. And in ACT, what we do is help them relate to that in a different way rather than getting tangled up in it or rather than trying to get rid of it. Mm. So there's, there's issues around that. There's issues around having a voice. Quite often I work with leaders who are in a meeting and there's an interesting discussion going on and they will want to make a contribution and they go inside their head and think, right, I'm going to craft this contribution. I'm going to design beautifully what I'm going to say. And then they come back to the room and the, the conversation has moved on and they've missed their opportunity. Or someone else has just said what they were going to say and been <laughs> applauded for it. So it's really frustrating for them. Yeah. <laughs> One other key thing that's, that's quite prominent at the moment it feels well two others actually one of them is perfectionism Mm. people feeling that they have to do everything perfectly and 
expending a heck of a lot of energy to do stuff perfectly when it might not be fulfilling or that adaptive for them. Mm. And the other one is, say a leader's gone up through various levels of a hierarchy and they've got to quite a senior role. And they're trying to use the same strategies that have got them to that senior role in the first place. So perhaps they are doing everything themselves instead of delegating. And if they're doing everything themselves, they think, right, I've been rewarded for that in the past. That's really worked for me in the past. Uh, yeah. This is why I've got to where I've got. And they try applying the same strategy throughout their career. Mm. And there comes a point where it doesn't work. And that could be either through elevation up a hierarchy, or it could be in a new context, in a different organization. What works in one organization won't necessarily work in another. People tend to assume that if the competition is doing that, Mm. If they do that, they will be as successful. Mm. Mm. Or this is, a, this is a really great one. If people, you know how sometimes these management or leadership gurus or very yeah. successful people yeah. publish their daily routine? Yeah. Like I get up at 4.30 in the morning. I spend half an hour in an oxygen tank. Then I do some yoga and eat some egg whites. Mm. And then I do three hours of meditation and then I start my day and I work and I have three hours sleep or something. I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean? Yeah, and people yeah. think if they, if they emulate their hero or their guru, that they too will be as successful. And I, I'm big, that's a bit insulting to people, but you yeah. know what I mean? We can yeah. all have our gurus and think, exactly. yeah. oh, crikey, if I do what they do, that, mm. that's the key to success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just a moment ago, you touched on societal behaviors that we normalize. If we don't, if we don't think about them and if we don't investigate why those behaviors are happening, we end up normalizing them. What strategies would you say you implement with organizations and your clients as well for people to be able to manage their own personal behavior? Yeah. Crikey. That's, that's the billion dollar question, if you like. Yeah. What, what I aim to do is allow both individuals and organizations to see what's going on. So mm. in individuals, we can spend about 47% of our waking hours on autopilot. Mm. And what I mean by that is our bodies may be somewhere, but our minds are elsewhere. And sometimes that can be useful for us as human beings. We can yeah. develop great dreams of architecture, music, dance, creativity. But also the wandering mind isn't always a healthy mind. And it's getting individuals to come into the present moment because if say you're in an organization you might have become so routine in what you do that you don't actually notice that things are changing around you or you don't notice the impact you're having on other people around you so that's yeah that's one thing and then at an organizational level an organizational can, can stop looking outwards an organization can stop connecting with their clients and think, hey, we've nailed this, we're, we're really successful, so we'll just keep doing what we're doing. And again, that can be a sort of kind of autopilot for the whole organization. So it's, again, giving them skills to bring them into the present moment using, using things like mindfulness. But then I would say there's another element, what, what I would call sitting with discomfort, Quite often as individuals, if we're having unhelpful thoughts, what I would call unhelpful thoughts like, oh, this isn't going to work. I'm not sure if I'm good enough for this. We'll try and move away from those rather than just sit with them and be with them. 
knowing that they're yes. thoughts produced by our mind. Our mind's doing what it's designed to do to keep us out of danger. And the same thing can happen with, say, a leadership, the executive team of an organization. They can yes. become so used and, and habitual in their unwillingness to sit with discomfort that they kind of collaborate not to. So they might have a really difficult issue that everybody knows about. You might call it the elephant in the room, but, yeah. but they never really get around to discussing it because it's just too difficult or they know there'll be disagreement. So they just think, oh, it's probably easier just not to have this conversation. At the same time, the company could be going, the company's performance or the company's impact on the market could be going further down and down. So it's, mm. it's knowing, it's helping individuals and groups understand that it's okay to sit with that discomfort. In a leadership team, for instance, if you're saying, right, let's have a look at that elephant in the room, let's sit with it, let's work out what's going on, and there'll be, there'll be different opinions and disagreement. But through, that, through airing those different opinions and that disagreement, we are building trust and the capacity to be vulnerable in a leadership team, which is really important for their, for their well-being, but also the direction of an organization. Yeah. In your personal work, speaking of behavior, when it comes to managing your own personal behavior, would you say that you use your own techniques to manage your personal behavior or do you seek second opinions and consultation because people would assume that someone in your position has all the answers? So what is your, your perspective on, on managing your own personal behavior, even though you help others in terms of managing this? Mm. Brilliant, brilliant question. I love it because it's so important. So firstly, I use ACT in every area of my own life. So in every area of my life, I will think about how do I want to be in this area of my life? What's important to me? How can I bring what's important to me to life in my behavior? And what might my mind be doing that could get in the way? Yeah. So I'm using it all the time, whether it's in presenting in response to an invitation to do some work, whether it's with my family relationships, all the time. And the important thing to say is that I think that makes it more authentic in delivery, but perhaps even more importantly, my own behavior. It's recognizing that the application of acceptance and commitment therapy act doesn't turn you into some sort of sainted god where you're only yeah. doing great things. I will still be the person I don't want to be quite a lot of the time. Yeah. I'm not holding myself up as a role model. I'm holding myself up as someone who practices these skills and has some expertise in sharing them. But in a training with a workplace group, for example, I don't present myself as, hey, I'm the expert. Mm. I've nailed this stuff and I'm your guru. I aim to present myself as someone who is experiencing the same human condition that everyone in the room is. That's what connects us. True. Yeah. And by kind of showing the way my mind is working and my inter internal thoughts and emotions and how they still impact on my behavior, I think it makes it easier to share the skills mm. and give people more of an appreciation about how these skills could be used. So it's very yeah. much trying to create that, hey, I'm experiencing the same human condition as you, so I'm not the guru. What I would hate is if people thought of me as kind of on a platform where I've nailed life. It's very, yeah. for me, this, this, this approach is very human. 
And by me modeling that humanity to myself and that compassion to myself, mm. hopefully I can convey that to others. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So obviously you, you, it sounds like you work quite a bit with leaders and management, right? Yeah. So how does dealing with personalities like that, how do you, how do you go about it? Because surely those are sort of, you know what I mean, guys who think they know everything there is to know about their field and do you know what I mean? So they don't, I don't think they'd be the easiest people to, to give advice to. How do you, how yeah. do you go about that? Yeah. So I think if there were really people who thought they knew, they knew everything, they were really clear on their approach. Say if I was bidding for some work for an organization okay. and, and I was going in to tell them about my approach, but, and they were really clear about what they wanted to do and who they were. Mm. And I explained my approach as I've kind of been sharing with you guys. Yeah. I don't think they'd employ me mm. because my view would be that a leader who has a very rigid view of who they are, a story, if you like, of who they are and how they are as a leader mm that's not that flexible. I don't think that's useful for an organization to be that rigid. Yeah, because that's almost like a cage around them that stops them responding to new situations or new opportunities. Mm. So I don't think they'd employ me. I think the organizations that do recognize that it's useful to have agility as leader to respond to the hundreds of different scenarios that they will face mm. in in an organization over a year, for example, mm. how can they flexibly respond while still remaining authentic? If I explain my method of working and, and the science I use, if that attracts them, I think we can generally work well together. Mm. There will always be people who, who will be more skeptical. And sometimes I can share evidence base, so I can share them some evidence of how this approach can work. Okay. And also, it's, it's never really advising. Well, I, I would say it's never advising. It could be advising on an approach to take. Okay. But in one-to-one -one work, it's very much a, a coaching, okay. a coaching yeah. uh, relationship where I am having a conversation with mm. a leader mm. to explore the issues that they want to work on. Mm. And hopefully through that conversation, we can unlock different perspectives on issues and different potential from mm. them that's already within them mm. for instance i could be reconnecting them to their personal values what really matters to them about their leadership and how they are in this current context or i could be talking to them about being in the present moment or perhaps more importantly what's going on between their ears that could be getting in the way of being the leader they want to be mm. are there some doubts there are they waiting are they thinking I'll be the leader I want to be once I have done that course or once I have tackled that difficult issue. Mm -hmm. Or I will have that difficult conversation with a colleague. I'll have it next week. Oh, I'll have it the week after. So it's, it's connecting them with personal values, supporting them in that, and then working out what could be getting in the way. So it's a collaboration with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Russ, you say that it's, it's coaching more than it is advice, yeah. I say, right? How do you deal with situations whereby you've, you've coached organizations, you've coached individuals, and you've done the best that you could, but then the results aren't as good as you thought they would be? How do you, how do you manage those kind of situations? Good question too, guys. These are great set of questions. 
so in coaching, so in one-to-one work, we'd have, we'd start at the beginning of a coaching relationship with measurable outcomes, how, how they're feeling, perhaps getting some feedback from their colleagues as well. And hopefully we'd have some indications of change, both in how they're feeling, how they're approaching different issues, and that there'll always be some movement, whether it's entirely yeah. the movement, because sometimes in coaching, I find you start and the issues they thought they wanted to work on aren't the actual issues that emerge. So it can go in a bit of a different direction. And it can result in, for instance, people deciding, actually, I need to leave this organization. Yeah. So there'll always be some, some developments. There might not be what we expected, but there'll always be some. On an organizational level, again, I would, I would hope, and in my experience, there are always some shifts in perspectives and behaviors in working with an organization. And I would work with them to develop a plan of how to embed what they've achieved so far, how to embed that further and to build on the change that's already occurred. So that, that, I think that would be my approach. That's interesting. What advice would you give to kind of like the younger generation, I'd say our generation, because these days I think you have a lot of young people who, who go to university, for example, get their qualifications. And then they start their, their career and their journey in an organization. But I think their expectations are a bit skewed and they don't know how to navigate their career to get the best out of what they're pursuing with a bit of clarity. So what would your advice to be for, be for young people starting out their careers in terms of the psychological aspect of being in an organization and as well as their well-being as well? Mm. Yeah, I think really important, particularly in these times now where our young people are experiencing the same global pandemic as everybody else and maybe thinking quite despairing thoughts about what will the future hold because yeah. our minds can travel into the into the future and if your mind's anything like mine it can catastrophize quite <laughs> quite elegantly and what i'd say is i think sometimes people go into careers because that's what they think they should do yeah, there might be there might be pressure from perhaps family members. There might be just a social expectation. Oh, I should do this. Yeah, and that career may be fulfilling for a while. It could be fulfilling for a whole career. But I would really encourage people to find ways to think about what's important. Find ways to connect with their purpose and meaning in life. That's what I'd mm. call our personal values. And there are so many self-help books out there guys there are so many like i said before gurus out there who will say hey just do this and everything will be fine mm, yeah and there's a bit of a danger in that i think that you follow what your guru says and it doesn't work out for you it becomes more of a prison or you follow a particular leadership structure you yeah. follow a particular leadership model and you try and force yourself into that and you find that yeah. becomes quite restrictive and doesn't allow you to be yourself and it doesn't allow you to progress in an organization. Mm. I think there's, there's something else. My experience of coaching younger leaders is they kind of want the answers. They kind mm. of, Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. And that's, for me, that's not, that's not what coaching is. Mm. Coaching is not that, hey, if you just do this, that'll be fine. And that that would be a bit, I don't think that would be ethical for me as a coach. And I certainly wouldn't do it to say, hey, 
you just need to do this and everything will be fine because that's very much from my perspective i'm not living their life in their yeah. shoes in their organization so i think it would be unwise and unethical for me to give a advice that could come more from a mentoring relationship so people might seek to get mentors in in the, in a field and get more of an experience of different careers i think young people would really benefit from knowing that the mind can be quite tricky and it can produce loads of content that's trying to keep us safe that's what our minds are designed to do and in keeping us safe it can stop us doing stuff that's important to us. Mm. And it's knowing that that content is, is there to protect us. It, our mind is doing its job, but our mind is quite glitchy. And we can learn to relate to that content. We can learn skills to relate to that content in different ways. This is the interesting thing about ACT. In approaches like CBT, we're looking to deconstruct that unhelpful content and challenge it and say it's not true, perhaps. And as you may gather, I'm not trained in CBT, but that's my basic understanding. Mm -hmm. What I like about ACT is the humanity in relation to those thoughts. It's saying, hey, we're all human. You're going to have these thoughts. That's part of the human condition. So your mind is doing exactly as it's intended to do. And we can learn to relate to those thoughts in different ways that are not so debilitating to us. Mm. That allows us to still pursue what's important to us in our life. I think that would be some of my advice to the younger generation is to think about what's important and be prepared to explore that, knowing that it could be uncomfortable. There could be some mm. discomfort there, but that's okay. We don't need to run away from that discomfort. Mm. Yeah. Because quite often as young people, I think, I don't know about you guys, but if we're experiencing discomfort or sadness or despondency, we're kind of told by the people around us, oh, cheer up. It'll get better, yeah. it might never happen. Whereas I would say, oh, that's okay to feel these emotions and it's okay to, to sit with them for a bit because they will pass, but you're not mm. broken and you don't need fixing if you're experiencing those emotions. Because I think people can often feel that if they're not 100% happy, 100% all of the time, that there's something wrong with them. Mm. You touched on sort of, uh, I actually want to explore it a bit deeper on self-help and you know how there probably is a lot of misleading, maybe not intentionally misleading, uh, material out there. Do you have any mm. good sort of metacognition materials that you could recommend? Yeah, if someone was interested in exploring acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, mm. to, to see if this might be a, an approach that resonates with them, I would put a side note. Obviously, I'm completely biased towards ACT Yeah, because I've got a strong evidence base. I believe it has profound benefits for the human beings of this world. So a great place to start, a colleague of mine who makes it really accessible is a guy called Dr. Ross Harris. And he wrote a book, which is a really great place to start called The Happiness Trap. Okay. And I can send you the details of that. And it really presents ACT in a way that's accessible. And it's a really great introduction to ACT. So that's probably the foundational text mm. i would recommend if people wanted to go into it in more detail and understand a bit of the underlying theory yeah i would recommend hmm, what would i recommend hang on i'm just going to turn around and look at my bookshelf bear with okay. me <laughs> no problem i think uh, you need a disclaimer just to tell uh, everyone this is not sponsored uh, material 
<laughs> oh, absolutely. I don't have any arrangements or benefits <laughs> from promoting these books. Right. I've grabbed a couple of books. Two other books I'd recommend, guys. And one is called A Liberated Mind. Mm. And that is by Dr. Stephen C. Hayes. And he is one of the originators of ACT. And that's a recent book. And it really does encapsulate the evolution of the approach. The subtitle is Transform Your Thinking and Find Freedom from Stress, Anxiety, Depression and Addiction. And then there's a great book from a colleague of mine in Canada called Healthy Habits Suck. How to Get Off the Couch and Live a Healthy Life Even If You Don't Want To. And that's by Dr. Dana Lee Bagley. I'll send you the the details of those because that last one by Dana, they all present ACT in a really accessible way. But Dana talks about it in terms of, oh, gosh, should we have that salad or should we have the nice portion of fries? And why it's so attractive for us to have those fries. Mm. She she links things to our personal values and she does it in a really accessible way. So they, they have some great texts to introduce people to ACT, I would say. P-Supers, that's it in the bag. I'd like to thank Thato and G-Man for their questions. It was so interesting to talk with them, and there's more to come in the next episode. If you like this episode of the podcast, please could you subscribe, rate, and review it. It helps us get recognised and reach more people. The show notes are at rossmackintosh.co.uk, and this includes links to a few different platforms. I love to hear from you, and you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we are at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, we're at People Soup. On Facebook, we are at People Soup Pod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and to Alex Engelberg for his vocals and to you for listening. Look after yourselves, peace supers, and bye for now.